Hello and welcome to Building Local Power. I am your co-host Reggie Rucker and we are back with another episode for this season where we are highlighting frontline stories in the fight against monopoly power by talking with people from all across the country who are actively engaging in building more equitable, thriving local economies. In the last episode, Aaron Johnson and Stacey Mitchell detailed the numerous positive impacts that local independent grocery stores have on communities. In this episode, we take one step back and answer the question, how does that produce even get to the grocery store? How does that sauteed onion get to your plate? Well, we take you to the small town of Glenville, Georgia, where a Vidalia onion farmer walks us through his journey of joy and trials and tribulations, becoming one of the few remaining small Vidalia onion farmers in the nation. To get into it, let me kick it over to my co-host who has yet to make me cry over the many sessions of chopping it up, Luke Gannon. What's up, Luke? <laughs> you know, I haven't, Reggie, but I have an inkling that our guest on the show today might make you shed a tear. I am Luke Gannon, and today on Building Local Power, Shad Dasher paints a firsthand picture of what farming looks like in America. So let's dive right in. Well, I'm a third generation Vidalia onion farmer. My grandfather, my dad's side was a farmer and my dad was a farmer and I just followed in the footsteps and we used to raise a good bit of hogs but also a lot of produce and back whenever my grandfather was started growing onions they found out there was a particular region in this area that has a little bit of low sulfur and so it makes the onions a little bit sweeter and from that, just grew up falling behind my granddaddy and my dad and just learning from them and just fell in love with, like my grandmother would say, playing in the dirt. And just, you know, that's all I've done except for one, I'm a Desert Storm veteran. I joined National Guard and served in it and then came back to the farm. Apart from when Shad served in the National Guard, the farm has been his entire life. And when you and your parents and grandparents have worked the land for generations, there's no shortage of stories to tell. My dad and his brothers operated Dasher Brothers Farms. And so we had several cousins. I've got 16 cousins. And we would all be doing something on the farm. And somebody's birthday would come up. We would butcher some of the kids and have a big family barbecue at my grandmother's house. And you'd go pull peanuts and have peanut bowls. And, you know, you just got out there and worked the land. And that's one of the most peaceful things to be able to get out there on the tractor and go to plowing and cultivating. And, just different things like that. And then, you know, just enjoying being out in the open on a farm, learning how stuff has grown and watching when you set out like tomato plants and within 65 to 75 days, you'd be picking tomatoes or picking squash. Since the ripe age of 14, Shad has modeled what it means to love the dirt and love working the land. Over the years, the farm has changed from hog farming all the way to Vidalia onion farming. 
As Shad walks out his front door every morning, this is what he sees. Well, the onion farm, you know, you'll see the fields, and most of them are small fields, anywhere from, say, 10 acres to 50 or 60 acres. You've got pine trees and poplar trees and gum trees around the fence rows. And onion season starts here, like most growers grow their own plant beds. So in say mid-August, we'll start turning the ground, preparing the onion beds, and we'll start sowing onion seed in September. And the planting season will go from the whole month of September. And usually it takes about six weeks for that onion to grow to about the, the base of the onion plant needs to be at the size of a number two pencil. Then in November and December, you'll pull the plants out of the plant bed. You'll go to the dry production field. There, different people have different settings on the population, but you'll have an implement hooked up to the tractor, which will punch roughly 82,000 to 110,000 holes to the acre. And so five good workers can set an acre a day. And it's all hand planted. You have to walk through the fields. You drop off bundles of plants. And the workers come behind and set out. And then they go on to another farm. And this is mainly H2A labor that we're having to use now because we just can't get the local help to come. And so say from January to early April, it's mainly myself fertilizing and watering the onions and spraying. Then in mid-April, we'll begin the harvest season. Busiest month would be harvest season. Begin by coming to the shed roughly around 5.30 in the morning. Check and make sure all the machineries and working order We'll have roughly between 45 and 50 workers up underneath the packing house. And we'll start working at 8 o'clock, grading and processing onions and bagging onions. We'll run till about right around 10 o'clock at night. And if there's any trucks that need to be loaded after 10 o'clock, then I would stay as needed. And that would have to be the busiest time, just making sure everybody's Shad's farm is located in Glenville, Georgia, with a whopping population, according to the census, of 3,707 people, but 10,000 people when you include the outskirts. It's the kind of small community where you know your grocery cashiers and bankers by name, and the kind of community where you patiently await the yearly onion festival. We always have a Used to, there was a rivalry between Glenville and Vidalia dealing with the onions. We had our own Glenville sweet onion. And because of the, the heat degrees, Glenville would always harvest a few days earlier than Vidalia. And so there was always a rivalry between who had the sweetest onion and we were always ahead of them and it was a constant battle. And so we have an onion, Glenville Sweet Onion Festival every year. 
that I think this coming year will be the 39th or 40th year running. And so everybody comes into town that has moved off because it's the Glenville Onion Festival. All the friends and family that's moved off come home to see mama and daddy, aunts and uncles. And it's a one big day deal, have a hometown parade and your food booths and all. And it's, a, it's a real good time, you know. And just everybody here it's local and it's you get along and very much rivalry, I would say. It's just that there's just not nothing really here anymore. Kids have to move off to get a job to be able to make a living. And you know, you've got several churches, and several churches have different programs, and it's open to the community. And then we do have a little theater where shows are put on. So once a year, twice a year, there's a little skit deal that goes on. But talking back to the grocery stores, used to there was roughly probably about 15 truck farmers, and that's vegetable people that would grow vegetables. Now in this community, I say right off the top of my head, there's only like three of us left. That's one thing I enjoy a lot is being able to grow vegetables and have people that really hadn't, just like watermelons. You take watermelons now, the grocery store chains want you to cut that melon when it's 75% done. People do not know what a good homegrown watermelon is supposed to taste like. And whenever they get one, it's just like a tomato. They don't know what a homegrown tomato tastes like. But once they taste how a watermelon or a tomato is supposed to be grown, they say, man, we haven't never ate nothing like this before. And you see, it's just something that's missing out in this country is just like cultivation, plow. That's a lost art. As a small farmer in America, you need a lot of hope and perseverance because a natural disaster could uproot your livelihood at any time. You got young people that are interested in getting into the farming industry. Just like myself, I have five children, the three boys, they hadn't fell in love with the dirt, but my two girls, if there was money for me to make feel comfortable with them getting into the business and carrying on with it, I would be sure of that because a few years back in 1996, I've got two brothers. They farmed with me. We had 200 acres of by-day onions. We were roughly five days from harvest at one of the most beautiful crops you'd ever want to see. Went to bed with 200 acres, got up the next morning with 100 acres. A hailstorm had come through and it looked like you just took a lawnmower and mowed the whole 100 acres down. The USDA came out and said, well, if you lost 50% of your acreage, you would get low interest loans because at that time there was no crop insurance. And so the inspector came out, he looked at the fields, he said, you've got a 50% loss. Just keep up with your records on your sales and tonnage 
off the other 100 acres and bring them to Reedswood, Georgia, which was 15 miles from farm. We did that. I left my two brothers at the tractor shed. I drove 15 miles. I walked into the Farm Service Agency. Miss Annette sat down, took a calculator, calculated out the formula that USDA had provided. And then she looked at me and she said, Shed, you don't qualify for no help. And I says, Miss Annette, I says, I lost 100 acres. She said, yeah, but you made so much tonnage on that other 100 acres that you don't get no help. So 15 mile ride back to the farm, pull up, my two brothers look at me, which are younger than me. They say, we won't get any help. And I says, nope, we've got to tighten the belt, weather the storm, and just have to hope. And that was the year they quit. And so I tell people I've got the double S disease. And that is stupid and stubborn because I still love playing in that dirt. And I like growing stuff and I like seeing the community find my growth of the vegetables and all. You know, I just, it's just in my blood. And, but, you know, it's just like a German citizen said over in Germany, because my wife is German. And I had the opportunity to travel over there. A country with no farmers is no country at all. And this past year is the first time the United States has imported more food than it has exported. And so once you have somebody controlling what you eat, you're in pretty bad shape. But hailstorms aren't Shad's biggest problem anymore. Now, corporate consolidation in the food and agriculture industry has put Shad's livelihood at risk. The more the corporations, the larger keep getting larger. And at one time, whenever I was in my teenage years, they were close to like 300 by the onion farmers. So now they would be roughly somewhere I would say 21 to 24 farmers left out of that 300. Like here in Glenville, we used to have three grocery stores. We're down to one grocery store. We've got, had two major hardware stores. Now we're down to one hardware store. The downtown area where you used to have several stores, just about all of those are closed up. You know, you, you just don't have the, type of activity you used to have whenever I was, say, in my later 19-year-old. And so, you know, it's been a big change since all that's taken place. Well, I do have one dealing with a wholesale house in Atlanta, Georgia. A friend of mine worked with the Georgia Department of Agriculture for a number of years named Mike. He called me and wanted me to write up this wholesale house at the Atlanta Farmers Market. And I rode up there, walked into the meeting, and they're an international company. And the fellow set a box of scallop squash on the counter, half bushel box. And I don't know if you're familiar with scallop squash or not, but 
they're they're get about the size of a dollar is what they were wanting picked. And it's about the thickness of an oyster shell. And he says, how much would it cost for you to get this picked and packed, Mr. Dasher? And I said, probably about five to six dollars. The gentleman went to closing up the box, said the meeting was over. And this was about 20 years ago. And I says, why is this meeting over with? Because of five to six dollars. He says, Mr. Dasher, this box I can get picked for a quarter in Guatemala. Put it on a ship, send it to Miami, and it'll be up here in Forest Park within four or five days. And they've got a new technology where the Ziploc bag goes over that box and it looks like it's just been picked the next day. So, you know, if you're in the international business of bringing in produce and growing produce here in the United States, then you're going to constantly be, you'll have a job. But I say in the next 10 years, if you're like myself, very rarely will you see people like me because we have no business to go to because we're not a one-stop shop. Everything's getting consolidated. You're at the mercy of the consolidation, just like seed people. You've got two seed companies that come to town. And so you don't have much, you don't have choices to shop around. The consolidation of grocery stores used to, like going back whenever I was a teenager when the 15 truck farmers were here, you could go to the outlying towns and pull up to the back door of a grocery store chain and sell your produce straight to the grocery store that had been picked that morning. You had it in the grocery store by 12. Now you had to send everything to a DC center and it sits in there sometimes for two to three weeks. Used to be uh, organic grower but by day onions, but I no longer grow organic by day onions because before the bigger growers jumped into the organic by day onion business, you could sell a 40 pound carton of by day onions for 35 to $40 a carton. And at one time, I'd gotten up to 150 acres of organic Vidalia onions. But when the larger conventional Vidalia onion growers started getting calls from the grocery store chains like Kroger, Publix, Costco's, they started using the organic onions as a, a little carrot they would dangle out in front of the grocery store chain and say, well, you know, if you buy X amount of conventional onions from us, we'll, we'll have so many organic onions for you. And so the price plummeted down to 16 to 22, $24 a carton. And it takes roughly about $25 a carton to break even with organic onions. And so what little niche market that was, was destroyed by bigger growers. And the grocery store chains now, they are more interested in a one-stop all purchasing point. And so what few growers that are left here growing by the onions had to become international buyers. 
And so they import a good bit of Peruvian onions, Mexican onions, and Guatemalans, wherever they can source sweet onions. And one time I called Costco's, offered to be able to try and supply them with onions. And they said, no, you don't carry international onions. And so I even went back and says, well, what if I just repack for y'all to make a little extra money on the farm? And they said, no, we already got somebody dealing with that. And so to be a regional grower is pretty tough. And you have to find little niche markets to try and sustain yourself. In order to survive, Shad has worked with church groups, nonprofits, and local farmers markets to keep his farm afloat. The community support has been essential for his business. We do have a small farmers market located 15 miles south of Glenville in a small town called Ludowisi, Georgia. And we carry a good bit of our produce down there and sell to the local communities down there, people passing by. But in terms of, let me put it this way, if I was to lose my fundraising niche, I would have to in turn either go and grow for these international, what I call international growers of our day onions and be underneath them so I can, I would say a servant, yes sir, no sir. And one thing about a farmer or a rancher, we're very independent. And we, just like with me, I'm a tinker. I'll sit there and I'll tear apart a cultivator or a planter and I'll remodify it, trying to get the best out of it, you know. And we really hate to have somebody put, as I say, their thumb on me and say, you're going to do it this way or not. And it's the independence. When you're out there in that field, turning the ground, plowing that crop, we're out there having the crew out there and you enjoy being out there and you enjoy it. See, that's just like for me. It's dangerous for me because... Farming is a job, but it's also my hobby. At some point soon, America is going to have to ask itself, can a nation survive without farmers? I, for one, was really taken aback by Shad's story. I hope you were too. A big thank you to Shad Dasher for joining us on the show today. For the second half of this episode, we invited Sarah Carden, who is the Senior Policy Advocate at Farm Action, where she threads Shad's story with the necessary policy reform for the nation's food and agriculture system. But before that, I'm going to pass it to the man who irons his clothes every single morning, even though he works from home, Reggie Rucker. (laughs) So, you know what they say, Luke? You stay ready so you don't have to get ready. But actually, seriously, what's more important than what they say is what Shad said. A country without farmers is no country at all. But today, we are at a moment where policymakers, regulators, and citizens can make the choice to support a decentralized system where millions of farmers like Shad can produce healthy local food for their regions. 
ILSR is telling these stories one at a time and building a coalition of people willing and ready to create a better future. If you connect to the vision of a thriving food and agriculture industry as part of a sustainable community and thriving economy, consider heading over to ILSR.org backslash donate. Even if it's just $5, $10, whatever you can, your contribution at ILSR.org backslash donate matters to our work to fight corporate power and build thriving, equitable communities. And if you're looking for additional ways to support, we will always accept a kind review wherever you get your podcasts. These reviews make a huge difference in helping us reach a wider audience. Okay, that's our break. Thank you so much for listening. And now back to the show. Thank you so much, Sarah, for taking some time out to talk with us today. We really appreciate it. First thing I want to do is sort of just like set the table. And I actually didn't even mean to do that, but set the table. So people have a very general sense of the food industry, but basically like shows up on their tables, grocery store shelves, but we don't really know where it comes from. Like we have this vague sense of a migrant farmer who's doing this grueling work out in the fields. But then beyond that, we just like really don't know how it gets from the cliche farm to fork, but we don't really know like how that happened. So we were blessed to hear Shad's story and that was enlightening for us. Can you tell us a little bit more about sort of that story of farmers and tell us some things about the farming community, the farming industry that most people really just wouldn't know about? Yeah, so I think what's important or interesting is that when people picture a farm, I don't think that that is in line with what what farms look like today. Mm-hmm. I think there's mm-hmm. a real dichotomy. We said I also when I'm not at farm action run a vegetable farm and and we encounter this all the time when we have school groups come by and they're you know they say where's your barn for your animal where are your chickens <laughs> you know like the farmscape is not sort of the old quintessential old McDonald image any longer due to various pressures farmland has really been vastly consolidated animals have been driven inside largely and and cropland has been separated from the animals so you have different operations now it's no longer a, a sort of diverse farm family farm homestead they are the vast majority of our our livestock our meat and poultry is now being produced in large densely populated confinement buildings that you know we we advocates call CAFOs Cropland is is usually located somewhere else with a handful of farmers that are really responsible for managing thousands of acres across multiple counties. Another important thing to keep in mind when we try to picture where our food is coming from is Shad touched on how many fewer Vidalia farms are left. This is not isolated to Vidalia farmers. Farmers are going extinct how quickly we are losing farmers is is pretty staggering. I think in the mid 1930s we had we sort of peaked at around 6.8 million farms. Today we're down to about 2 million. And what's important to keep in mind is despite that nearly 5 million loss number, we're still farming about the same amount of acreage. It's just mm. there's that many fewer folks right, right. farming that. This farm landscape has shifted a lot. And unfortunately, it's been at the detriment to the most. There's a handful of agribusinesses that are doing great from this. But in the meantime, we're seeing a loss of farmers. We're seeing the extraction and depopulation in our rural communities. And we're seeing a, a real like 
resiliency issue in our food supply chain that I think, you know, the, the pandemic highlighted and, and really brought to the table, but is has been there for a long time. And it, it is really a food national security issue. Sarah, I'm wondering if you can expand a little more on how Shad's story stacks up to other small and mid-sized farmers' stories that you've heard across the country in terms of the size of Shad's farm, the scale at which it operates, the variety. I had no idea before I talked to Shad that, you know, there's just a Vidalia onion farmer. So can you sort of make a lay of the land of what farmers look like across the country who are not these five big conglomerates? Yeah. So, you know, what's interesting is there are these like big conglomerates that are really producing a lot of our food. It takes about about 3% of our farms are responsible for about nearly half of the production, right? But that said, there's a lot of small farms out there. Um, these farms are largely relying on off-farm income because they cannot compete in today's market to earn a livable wage. So there's usually multiple sources of revenue coming in to support those households. The farms that I see, you know, when I look at the data that we are losing the fastest are the midsize producers. They're really going, they're the ones that are going extinct. There's no place for them. Their operations are too expensive, have too high of a cost, and there's no market for, there's just no market for them to sell into. So it's go big or go home. And then you have the small farms that can survive by getting outside jobs to to live off of and they just can you know barely scrape by to keep the, this land in their family. Like you said, you know the shad just grows by daily onions which is not it's not atypical. Most of our farms have very little crop diversity just because of the pressure to be efficient and compete on economies of scale. Shad's a little unusual in that he's at least growing a food crop for people. <laughs> Most of our acreage is, especially our cropland, is now really being devoted to corn and soybeans. And, and this isn't corn that's ending up on your plate or in your edamame. These are going to these are going to animal feed, and a lot of it is getting ex is going into an export economy. So that's not by accident. Um, our our farm policy, and this is where like our work at Farm Action really focuses, is really driving farmers into this to, to produce corn and soy. There's a lot of incentives for them to, to continue to overproduce this commodity crop. And in the meantime, we are no longer feeding ourselves. We're importing food from other countries that we need and we export animal feed that goes and we export livestock that's raised in really terrible conditions that have really harmful effects for their communities. So it's, we're really in a vulnerable position because we we no longer can grow feed ourselves and we are dependent on nations with which we have variable relationships with to feed us and buy our exports. So you've mentioned this sort of a couple of different ways earlier. You talked about this being somewhat of a national, maybe not even somewhat, it's a national security risk. And then you hear you're talking about, you know, our reliance on foreign nations that you know, we've seen it in oil and we're sort of running up against the same issues. We're reliant, reliant on dangerous actors to provide us food. So, you know, Shad had this, this compelling quote, a country without farmers is no country at all. Like, 
is that what he's talking about? Or can you kind of expand more on what this notion is? Like, what does it mean to you when you hear this phrase, like a country without farmers is no country at all? It brings up a lot of emotion, honestly. Yeah, you know, I mean, this you, you sort of touched on a number of different things in that, and it's a, it's sort of loaded. But when you bring that up, it, it, our farmers are losing control of the land, right? Like they are being driven off the land. And there's a lot of data on the, the growing average age of the American farmer that we, the next generation of farmers cannot access farmland because they're being forced to compete against investment firms and foreign countries and, and other folks who see farmland as an investment opportunity to grow their and diversify their portfolios. They lease the land back to farmers, but farmers are no longer the, the driver it's this app, this concept of absentee ownership. So like an example of just because you're leasing the farmland back, there's a change in that. So, you know, if you're responsible, if you're passing down this piece of land for generations, you have a very invested interest in how this land is going to, what it's going to look like in 10 years, in 20 years, in, in, in 50 years. If you're farming this land for somebody who's given you a three, five, 10 year lease contract, like your interests are going to be different, right? So you're going to farm it differently. What you're going to farm is going to be different. What kind of investments you're going to make in that land is going to be different. So we are just increasingly, every year, we we have fewer farmers growing food for their communities. And this that, that can mean things like what Shad is doing. It can mean folks who are raising livestock that they can sell then to their local independent grocer that goes back into their community. That can mean folks like myself that do more of like a diversified vegetable. We, we, lose, we lose these people every year. More and more farmland gets goes into this corn, soybean overproduction of commodity. And as a result now, USDA is now predicting a record high trade deficit in 2023. So think with that, think about that. Like we think of ourselves as this huge agricultural powerhouse in America. But we're actually now importing more food than we are exporting. And moreover, what we're importing is the food we eat. We are no longer feeding ourselves. So, you know, sort of on Chad's point, like we are on that track to be a country that has no farmers. So, Sarah, you know, you've said we've gone from 6.8 million farmers to we're down to 2 million now. We're losing farmland every year. So I want to know, how did we get here? Can you give a brief history of what has happened in terms of consolidation in the agriculture and farming industry in the last decade? Yeah. I can, can I back it up just like a little bit further than the decade to sort of set the stage? Of course. Because <laughs> this didn't start a decade ago. This kind of has been and consolidation pressures are not unique to farming and agriculture. We've seen them across industries. A really important turning point is in the, the 80s during the Reagan administration, there was a, a shift, uh, it's called sorry, the Chicago School of Antitrust. And there was a, a shift in interpretation of antitrust legislation that had been in place for a very, very long time, uh, which traditionally existed to promote competition and, and healthy competitive markets. And they instead started prioritizing efficiency. And this meant with the argument that this would lead to cheaper stuff for Americans, right? And this is where this rise of bigger is better came from. And so 
starting around then, if you you know look back over time, you see a really significant shift and a lack of enforcement of antitrust legislation. And with that, a rise and a huge rise in mergers and acquisitions. And we see industries consolidating across the spectrum and you see it everywhere and, and not just food and ag, although food and ag does feel like one of those industries where it's just really egregious. We have a, a report out at Farm Action, the concentration report that's full of, that sort of examines all the different industries within the um, food and ag system and the food supply chain and every single sector. Economists will argue that when the top four corporations control more than 40% of the market, you're in a precarious situation. This this could lead to yeah. a real vulnerable market opportunity. In the food and ag where, where, where space where I work, you know, we see things like 85% market wow. control in beef and 60% in chicken processing. In the seed industry, there's three guys, you know, Shad talked about this. He's got two people he can get fertilizer from, three people he can get seed from, mm-hmm. you know, they... And for farmers where this comes into play, so they have this huge consolidation on their their input side, everywhere, all the things they need to bring into their farm to have a productive operation or an operation of season. They have no control over their market. They're forced to pay what they're offered and often under very dangerous terms. And then there's the, the buyer side where they're selling to. And that is equally as consolidated. So they have no leverage there. And mm. so they're, and they're stuck. And people often refer to this like hourglass. They're stuck in the middle yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. in between all these huge entities. And it gives them very, very little opportunity. And you see just these terrible statistics about, you know, suicide rates being triple in farmers because they they just, you know, they're looking at these operations and they have no place where they can make active changes to to improve their numbers because the market is no longer competitive. They just have, they have no more, you know, in, in vast majority of these operations. So you've made the case for why the way that the industry is currently set up and overly concentrated is problematic for the farmers themselves, the small and mid-sized farmers themselves. Is, is there a similar sort of problem that then sort of trickles down to the consumers or like, are they winning? Are they getting cheaper fruits and vegetables and food and like everything's good for the consumer and it's just the farmers that are hurting? Like, yeah. Is there a problem for consumers that we should be concerned about as well here? We are now seeing the failure of this policy. On the consumer end of the spectrum, we are seeing record high food prices. Everybody knows how much they were paying for eggs, right? Right. And Farm Action actually did a report recently. We sent a letter to um, some of the enforcement agencies. We looked at the financial records of some of the the major egg corporations. And while prices are sky high for consumers, they are also reporting record high profits. And we do this a lot at Farm Action. So we see this in fertilizer. We we, we send a similar letter. We do these reports. We've seen it in meatpacking. So because the market is no longer competitive and is controlled in all these different markets by two, three, maybe four large corporations, they're able to, under the guise of various different emergency supply chain issues or avian flu in the egg case, these issues are real, but they use it to 
drive up their prices way higher than they need to. And they, they can coordinate pretty easily because it's only two or three guys, whether they're explicitly having a phone call or they're all just know to watch each other's prices and, and, and take advantage of these markets together. A really like great example of that was um, back in 2019. I don't know if you remember, there was a Tyson meatpacking plant over in Holcomb, Kansas that caught fire and, and was forced to shut down. That plant was responsible for, you know, five or 6% of the beef processed in the U.S. The fire happens on a Friday. By Monday morning, the meat packers are out there saying, you better go get your beef because we're down. We, we're going to have a huge shortage nationwide. So, you know, we've all seen what happens. The shelves are empty. There's this huge run. Meanwhile, the price retailers are paying is, is racked up at the same time. The meat packers are cutting the price they're paying to these cattle producers because they're saying we've we've lost processing capacity, right? So you look at two weeks following that fire, and we found there was a 67% spread between what the, the beef packers are paying to the farmer and what they're charging retail grocery, which is just to put that in perspective, like a 143% increase over the preceding two years. Oh, but here's the kicker. If you look at the three weeks that followed that fire, the beef industry actually slaughtered 5,000 more cattle than the three weeks prior to the fire. So they had the processing capacity. Right. It's all yeah. right. Like yeah. so they're so they're consuming there. And then we all saw, and maybe I'm getting too much into this, but we all saw when you only have like a handful of entities responsible for such a huge portion of your food supply, not only can they manipulate prices, but there's a real resiliency issue there, right? Like we saw that within um, infant formula when that one plant shuttered and we're still, parents and families are still having trouble feeding their babies. So yeah, there's definitely a, a consumer side to this. Yeah, Sarah, you've done a great job of detailing that. It is very clear that we have a problem. And it's not just for consumers, it's for farmers, it's for people across the board. So I'm curious if there are policies at our disposal that we could implement to create a fairer playing field in, in the farming sector. Yes, there's a number of different policies that we at Farm Action are supporting and, and advocating for. Senators Booker and Warren have both introduced forms of legislation that call for, you know, merger moratoriums. Um, Senator Booker's is, is specific to the agribusiness space and Senator Warren's is a little broader, but that would essentially just call for no more like giant mega mergers, right? The Senator Warren's also includes a really important look back provision, um, which reexamines past mergers. The DOJ and the FTC, who are really our, our main antitrust sort of watchdogs, have expressed an interest. You know, I think there's a lot more recognition to this failed antitrust policy that we're seeing, and they're expressing an interest in stronger enforcement. So this would give them the authority to re-examine past mergers, which of the past like 20 years that have been harmful. But there's also other ways that we talk about leveling the playing field for farmers, driving supports. Right now, the vast majority of our farm sports are really sucked up by certain types of farmers and also are this corn soybean produce production model and, and by larger farmers. And so we we work a lot with in in the farming world, 
redirecting those resources so that more folks are supported, more folks can farming different types of people, farming different types of crops to introduce diversity of crops, diversity of farmers, diversity of production models, right? And so redistributing these resources is another way. The reason that a lot of farmers, and, and we're farmer-led, this isn't, we are not calling out the, the soybean corn farmers, we're supporting them. They're farming what they need to do because they, you know, if they farm corn and soybean, they have a lot of different government supports if they do it conventionally to, to give them a stable, safe income. But if they want to go and grow vegetables, for instance, and hopefully it's not organic or regenerative because that's even harder, there's very little... There's, there's just much less out there. And this ranges from crop insurance op options to technical assistance, to infrastructure, to market opportunity. We just don't make the same kinds of investments in, in other farming industries. And so as we get sort of near the close of this, want to end on a little bit of a high note, you know, despite all the, the, yeah, like, the seriously dire potential to not preserve this critical industry. You know, you just laid out the tools that are available and the interest in doing something from our policymakers. So what happens if we do? What happens if we get this right? What does Shad's story look like in the long run? And what does, you know, you talked about it, he talked about it. Like that next generation of farmer who gets to take over and carry the legacy forward. Like, what what does that look like if we get this right? I, I like ending on that note. This is a fun game. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, no, I mean, we think a lot about what our vision for the food and farm system is with back to communities with farmers who are growing, you know, a more regionalized local food distribution network that supports farmers growing food for their communities that they can sell to a local independent grocery store and that they can bank at their local bank and have support local restaurants. And, and that's a real key to adding resiliency to our farm system at, you know, addressing national security and bringing back our rural communities and bringing back a path to opportunity for the next generation of farmers. I could go on for a long time about the details of what that vision looks like. So I know we have a limited time, but that's kind of the, the picture. You know, of course, one that the other way of creating resiliency is is through the environment too, and, and that their production models can can really help contribute in that sense as well. So I'd love to hear what book has influenced you. Are you could be a book you read 10 years ago or last year. Oh gosh, I'm getting sweaty palms. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I really have a hard time with favorite. Gosh, when I was, you know, a lot of 20 some odd years ago, I read one of Jane Goodall's books about her sort of work with the chimpanzees called In the Shadow of Man. What was pioneering about her was nobody studied animals the way she did and nobody asked the kinds of questions she was asking. And so she really revolutionized both an approach to science and our understanding of the world we live in. And that really stuck with me for a long time in how I see things, how I approach problems. That's great. No, I love it. Well, I hope we can revolutionize farming too and, and open that path of opportunity that you're talking about. 
So those are all of the questions from us. We cannot thank you enough, Sarah, for, for being on the show today and giving us your time. Not wanting to be ageist, I'm realizing that Luke always uses 10 years ago as if that's a long time ago. And <laughs> when, you, when you become, you know, when you get to be my age, at least I'll speak for myself, 10 yeah. years ago was like yesterday. And it's like, that's not that long ago. <laughs> Sorry. Well, thank you so much, Sarah, for this thoughtful and wonderful conversation and for joining us on the show today. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to this episode of Building Local Power. You can find links to everything discussed today by going to ilsr.org and clicking on the show page for this episode. That is ilsr.org. And if you like this podcast, please share it with all of your family, your friends, the people that follow you on social media because you're such a great follow, everyone. And remember, all of your reviews, likes, and donations help produce this podcast and support the research and resources that we make available to the public on our website. This show is produced by Luke Gannon and me, Reggie Rucker. This podcast is edited by Drew Birschbach and Luke Gannon. Our theme music for the season is composed by ILSR's communications manager, Andrew Frank. Thank you for listening to Building Local Power.